This is Passing for Normal, conversations with artists, activists, and awakeners about how they are seeding change in the world. I'm your host, Sharon Weil, author of Donnie and Ursula Save the World and the new book, Changeability, a work of nonfiction exploring how to navigate change with more effectiveness and ease. How do you find courage? How do you become more effective in navigating change? Find out when you join us for fun and insightful discussion with some very inspirational people about how to turn purpose and passion into action, while at the same time, passing for normal. Hello and welcome to Passing for Normal Season 2, where my guests are somatic psychotherapist Amber Gray and movement facilitator Fred Sugarman. In season one of our show, I spoke with a number of amazing change makers and change writers, not only about the incredible work they were doing in the world, but also about how they do it. How is it that they are so brave or so resourceful, so helpful, or remain so hopeful in the face of disappointing setbacks? Their wise answers to me became part of a new book, Changeability, How Artists, Activists, and Awakeners Navigate Change, and it inspired me to deeply contemplate the very nature of change and how to best meet this change in a fast, ever-changing world. In the book, I identify seven principles for change, whether initiating change, inspiring change, or adapting to existing change. These principles are interdependent and are present in how we navigate the personal and public changes of our lives. So what I want to do now is go back and engage the very guests that inspired my thinking about change. Go back to them and deepen our discussions about these principles in Passing for Normal, the Changeability series. Have hope is what allows us to dream into being what has not yet been formed. Hope says, why not? And what else? Without hope, I wouldn't even try. Hope is essential in motivating and sustaining change because hope lifts me to new possibilities so I can stay the course of my desire and do the hard work that it takes to get there. Both Amber Gray and Fred Sugarman work with hope as they do the multi-layered work of helping others in personal transformation, including restoring from trauma, through their somatic body-based movement practices. And it is within this connection that our conversation will take place. So I want to welcome you, Amber and Fred. Hello. Thank you. Hi, Sharon. Hi. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Fred. (laughs) Hi. I'm so glad to be together and have this conversation with you. You're both such, um, you do such fascinating work to me. So before we get into our conversation, I want to just tell our listeners a little bit about each of you. Amber Gray is a licensed psychotherapist, mental health professional, and movement therapist and teacher working clinically with survivors of human rights abuse, torture, war, domestic violence, ritual abuse, and community violence. She also works with governmental and non-governmental organizations around the world responding to disasters and complex humanitarian emergencies to develop staff care programs. As a highly trained body-based somatic psychologist, she integrates somatic movement, mindfulness, and creative arts-based therapies into her work. Fred Sugarman is a movement artist, educator, and workshop facilitator. His work lies in the rich valley between performing arts and healing arts to effect real full body change in people that includes mind, body, and heart. 
Through his company, Medicine Dance in Los Angeles, he offers classes, workshops, theatrical events, and private work in the art of mindfulness and movement exploration through a body-based inquiry into living fully and surviving gracefully. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, you, Sharon. Good to be with you, Amber. Yeah, same. (laughs) Great. So... Let's just begin by each of you briefly describing in your own words the work that you do and what your what your what does it mean to have a somatic approach or a body-based approach. Amber, why don't you start? Okay. I I think of my work in I think several different ways. The 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 way that I've been thinking about it and describing it more recently is is about how we inhabit our bodies. And one of my mantras, which many people have heard me say, or mottos or creeds, is that every human being has the right to inhabit their body in the way that they choose. And so whether I'm working clinically as a psychotherapist or somatically clinically or somatically teaching a continuum movement class or teaching a teaching psychologists or psychiatrists um, in the Middle East or in Australia to integrate somatic or arts-based practices into their work with survivors of trauma or um, even developing programs. At the, at the core, the heart of it is always we inhabit these bodies, these, these beautiful structures that were gifted for our time here on Earth, and we have choices about how we inhabit them and many times for many people, choice is stripped. It's taken away. We, um, you know, tra- traumatic experience is one such event, and there are other things that can happen. And so we might need to adjust. We, we need to adjust to the change. We need to adapt. Um, so I think of it as how, how as, as I'm actually not crazy about the word coaching, but coaching, supporting, um, guiding. I like the word guiding and facilitating people through a, therapeutic process that may be more or less clinical to, to be more, um, to have the ability to really choose this, this in, in, inhabiting of our body. That's beautiful. Thank you. Fred? Thanks for going first, Amber. I, I um, resonate with everything that you said, and that's no surprise to me. And... Um, one of the ways I've been finding uh, words to, to, to try to express the, the nonverbal process that, that I engage in with the somatic work is um, the observation that, uh, well, well, my work, I think all of our work is based on, um, it's rooted in a, a type of mindfulness, uh, mindfulness, which is very ancient, of course, and its origin very often associated with Buddhism. But the act of witnessing or seeing ourselves um, from a place of compassion or a place of less um, an, an analysis or criticism. So one of my um, fastest moving and, and deepest growing programs is called See, Here Love as a Tree. And it's based on the experience that I have that as I, can, as I have been learning and practicing for many years and feel like just a beginner, uh, to see myself from a, a less critical place as I've been um, practicing listening to what my body is is 
trying to say to me all the time, my body's always talking to me, I believe all of our bodies are always talking to us. I, I experience from seeing and from hearing what for me is very, is relatively new, but, but um, very compelling for me, and that's a sense of love towards myself. And from there, my work is largely, takes a lot of focus into, once I can begin to do that with myself, I can begin to apply that technology to seeing somebody else, to listening to somebody else. And it's not about loving them per se. I, I find it maddening when I'm in a workshop or a class or a situation where somebody's suggesting that I love something or I love myself, that doesn't come easy for me. But if I can really see someone or, or or really listen deeply love comes naturally and um it's it's uh it's all about neuropsychology or neurobiology you know all these words yeah. that we're using these days it, it's a part of our brain that lights up when we begin to feel our bodies is is a part of the brain that's associated with our connection to other living beings and to maybe even um you know the divine so it, it's all science-based, but but uh, but it's very it's a lot older than Western science, though. So that's my best shot at this moment. <laughs> Pretty good shot. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. So um. So we're. I want to talk about have hope, and what it means to have hope, and the importance of having hope, um, in any change process. You know, uh, in the book, I talk about how it's necessary to have hope as sort of a guiding light, as a reason, as a as holding out possibility that change and transformation can take place. And I know that both of you have worked um, at times with populations that have um, lost hope, or that have whose hope has been quite challenged, um, and that hope has to new possibilities have to be reimagined, have to be rekindled somehow. And so how, how does the work that you do or approaching through, through the body bring hope? I can go first this time. Is that all right, Amber? Yes. (laughs) Um, I would say the thing that comes up to me first, Sharon, um, is, is, hopelessness before hope um it seems like we're living in a, a time where where there's, there's really healthy and wise and anyone who's awake and listening and looking around has really good reasons to hope less than than maybe you know i i don't know i guess it, Every time is the same in some way, but there's just so much, or, or maybe we've got so much information about so many places and so many people and so many incidents and so many incursions and so many um, violent acts being per- per- perpetuated in our cities and our communities and the world, country to country, and blah, blah, blah. So, so I just want to acknowledge that I am vulnerable to less than full hope, and I have found that 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 through a process, a practice, and, 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 uh, and my practice, and I think Amber's practice or all of our practices is, is similar, a practice of becoming present, of becoming attentive to the present moment, where we can begin to acknowledge what's, what is rather than what we want it to be or what we think it should be or what we'd rather prefer it to be. As soon as we could get present with what is, we can begin to recognize that we have choice. And to me, free choice or a sense of free choice, whatever that means to whoever's listening to 
that those words free choice it, it to me that speaks of hope that 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 there's some way of creating or participating or being in change that that can take what I think maybe all of us are vulnerable to hopelessness and changing it into oh okay this is how it is but it's still there's still change possible mm-hmm. mm. yeah I would I I fully agree. I love everything that you've said, Fred. And it's interesting because when you ask the question, Sharon, the first thing that popped into my mind is um, hope Hope is still there. It's still there somewhere. And I think the process and how I work with people, people often present, whether I'm working with individuals or large groups, they present in a way that appears that there is no hope. And I have actually worked with people who truly have lost hope, and those have been the ones who often um, don't, I don't, I don't think, I, I, I resist the word trauma recovery because I don't ever think people make a full recovery. And I think we talked about that. I know we talked about it in the first interview yes, that uh-huh. I talked about the restorative process. But um, people who've really lost hope often are people who don't fully reengage with life again. They're people who end up settling for life in a different way. And, and, you know, agreeing with what you said, Fred, about witnessing, you know, there's no judgment about that. And most people and most communities I've worked with, somewhere there is a thread of hope or a spark of hope or a remnant of hope that might be buried or tucked away under the shards that form the, you know, the memories of the, of the, that, that, are, that have become the traumatic response or the, um, the focus on the suffering or the difficult things that are going on. And so a lot of times restoring hope or reconnecting to hope or reigniting hope is, is about simple things like how I ask questions. And if people only want to focus on what's not working or what's wrong or what's difficult, gently coaxing people back into questions about why that person might be sitting with me, why they might have come back to see me, how they got up in the morning, simple little things like that, and always making a connection to the body. Um, but I think also uh, I, there's a relationship between faith and hope that, that I think exists, and I think faith is the anchor that gives hope its buoyancy. And a lot of times I work with people to, to find, you know, what what belief, what faith, it may be religious or spiritual, it may be more global, keeps them going and connecting that to where that lives in their body. There may be physical sensations associated with it. There may be memories. There may be a person, a grandmother, a great-grandmother, you know, a practice or something like that. And, you know, simultaneously looking at it from a from a large, a big-picture perspective, but also breaking it down into pieces and, you know, what are the steps that one would take to complete this practice or this ritual um, that heals or gives hope. So it's, it's, I think there's a real connection between faith and how people keep going and link, mm-hmm. and, and that, and, and its relationship to hope. And I think that's, you know, coming from the world, from a more clinical world, where for a long time there's a real um, disdain of using the word spirituality in practice. I mean, as a movement person, as a dancer, um, dance is my, you know, it's, it's how I divine. It's my spiritual practice. And being a dance movement therapist straddles both the clinical world and the creative dance world. And I've been really committed to bringing more spirituality back into clinical practice because I think that's, 
that's how we bring hope in. Um, when you know, at least when I'm talking, when I'm working with people who are traumatized, is um, that may be the most significant thing in a person's life is is that 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 aspect of faith, spirituality, you know, oneness, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I would say that 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 attempt to separate or to avoid explicit. Um, suggestion or uh, calling in of what we call spirituality that that just takes it's all spiritual it's like saying Mm -hmm. that that our body is not sensual or 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 it can be uh, our bodies are our bodies are spiritual and to be and to attempt to separate that is 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 um is very difficult road in my mind I don't talk about spiritual matters explicitly because so many people have triggers because of different backgrounds, religious backgrounds or spiritual backgrounds, but but the spirituality of it is what comes through for me, the core of it each and every time and, and it, it, there's no there's no way to deny that in my mind. Yeah. I also want to say that we all work with the body and for me the attempt or the intent to to turn somebody on to the fact that that their bodies have the capacity for feeling good. A lot of people who have had trauma, which we all work with, lots of people with trauma, are are only used to associating their body with pain or or great difficulty or stress. And through through the medium of dance uh, and movement, there's no denying that some sort of at least a little bit of pleasure gets in there Mm -hmm. somewhere else way. And I love the the I Ching says good attracts good, and and in my mind, anytime somebody moves any any which way, more or less, if they can feel good for a moment, there's a little bit of hope there that that there's something okay, um, and and that that sometimes can be difficult for people who are who have reason to feel unsafe in their own bodies, but mm-hmm. but to me that's a goes a long way, moving in a way that feels good. Mm, that's wonderful. I find that one of the components of how people find hope or renew hope is through reframing, you know, like looking at something differently or reframing the situation. Um, and I know for myself and in my experience that having a primary sensory experience. I experience this movement in my body. I experience these sensations in my body can help me reframe what, um, what I've lost hope about, right? It's like, if you can have a new sensation, like Fred, you're saying, if you can find pleasure, joy in a moment, then you can reconsider, right? You can reconsider who you are, who you are in relationship to whatever your circumstances. What do you think? Uh, I think absolutely, uh, um, and there, there's just so little emphasis of that put in uh, our, our modern way of doing medicine. I'm very excited by the work that we share, and by and by uh, putting weight and some emphasis on on that possibility of of feeling sensation that is not just pain or not just displeasure. Yeah, no, I would agree, and I think you know, going back to the reference to what what's evident now through neurobiology and neuroscience, and 
And the fact that movement, you know, Bruce Perry says movement is the fastest way. I don't know if he uses the word fastest, but the most efficient and fastest way to grow the brain. And I like to say that when we work with movement, we're working with the neurological underpinnings of all our uh, human actions, behaviors, emotions, and, and life. So, so movement, people, pain is a pattern. Pain is, you know, the the pain that we experience as a result of suffering can actually create pattern movements in our body. So it can, it can be, it can happen quickly or it can take time, but I think inviting people to move in patterns and then move different patterns or find a different, um, a different direction to take one small movement in their body. And then that may be where the, there's a discovery. Oh, that's a sensation of openness or of pleasure or that felt, um, there's no pain there. I actually feel lightness there or something different. So I think, you know, I think there's a very neurological explanation for how movement actually can, and working with the body, can open new pathways and pathways of pleasure or warmth um, can lead to feelings and beliefs and aspirations of hope. So, yeah. yeah. Very, very different than changing my mind, right? You know, right. it's which is more of a mental, a mental construct. I'm going to change my mind about this. Um, very different than having a new sensation, making a new discovery. Oh, this feels good. Therefore, whatever I was patterned around, maybe it's different. Maybe that pattern can unwind. Maybe it can change. Yeah. And we know we know that having a, a move, being in an unfamiliar shape or allowing your body to move through a sequence of movements that that are not familiar literally changes the mind. The, the neural yeah. pathways are being created every time we we move spontaneously and in an improvisational way. It's, this is probably um, late in the conversation to bring this in, but I'm thinking maybe we should really define what we mean by movement. Because if someone is not in the dance world, or you know, if someone isn't in the somatics world, they might not really know what does it mean to move. Am I just talking about flailing my arms around? Am I? I'm always moving, right? I'm getting up. I'm sitting down. What do we mean specifically by movement here? Well, I'll jump in and because uh, I often have people come to me and say, you're a movement therapist. Ah, you're a dance therapist. Ah, you know, what am I going to have to do? And, um, and I've also had people who are attracted to the idea of movement, and it's very difficult for them to even get out of their chair. So sound, um, movement, breath, all on the same continuum. Breath made audible is sound. Movement, when it gets to a certain frequency, creates sound. So I from my perspective, working with movement, movement as a primary language, as, you know, an acknowledgement of the fact that in utero and when we're born, our earliest communications with the very significant caregivers in our life are our movements, gestures, facial expressions, sounds, and those, those grow to be the foundations of, of, you know, our spoken word, our symbolic world, all of those things. Um, so we're working movement, I th and I describe dance as the creative expression of movement. Breath is movement. If, if breath, it's, we ride it in, we ride it out, first and last act in life, and it you know can liberate movement, it can control movement. So I, I always say that movement is, it's, well, as Emily said, movement is who we are. It's, you know, it's not something we do, it's, it's who we are, but there's so many ways to move and it may be as simple as working with somebody's breathing patterns or very simple gestures 
or it may be a full um, spontaneous choreography of you know emotion that arises as um, expressive movements that become a dance. So it's all of it. Yeah, so so uh, agreeing with everything you just said, Amber. From my perspective, um, it, it's a, as much about and maybe more about identifying. Sharon, your question, what is movement? And if we look around, if we go out on a still day and look at the leaf on a on a bush or a tree, it's moving to some degree. If we look up at the clouds, there's always some movement in the sky. If we if we go out into the ocean or on a lake, there, there's always movement happening. So So we as made up of the same particles as rocks or wind or fire or rain or any of those other elements we are in constant motion and in my from my perspective to most of us don't go around being trained to be aware of that once we become we can become aware of that movement that amber referenced for instance the breath or the heartbeat or the pulse or the or the the knowledge that that our cells are always receiving fluid and letting go of fluid and opening and closing when we can begin to identify that movement is already occurring and always occurring, we can begin to feel it if we feel safe and, and comfortable enough in the environment that we're all, you know, I would say that we're all pretty expert at creating for people or supporting people and creating. If someone feels safe enough and can and can relax just a little bit, they can begin to recognize that their toe is moving or that their their jaw is tense or loose and so once we begin to identify that, we can begin to exaggerate it or or we can begin to let it um, go even slower and smaller. But but movement is, I, I love the quote that you just gave of Emily Zamber, it's, it's what we are. Mm-hmm. Yes, everything's moving all the time. Every, yeah. you know, in the book, Changeability, I talk about change in terms of movement because of my own orientation and our orientation, many of people on the podcast orientation, that, that it's the movement of change that we're looking at and that we're either aligning with the movement of change or we're in resistance to the movement of change, but the movement of change is always moving. And as you know, and as, a body, I'm always moving. My cells are moving. My breath is moving. My fluids are moving. Right. And so to be able to take that process, that movement process and make it more specifically, um, or purposefully, uh, uh, in a larger sense of movement, um, there's so much discovery that can take place. And also the feeling of being one with, right? Being one mm-hmm. with the movement that's all around me all the time, whether it's in mm-hmm. nature, whether it's in other people. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things, I work with authentic movement, and I just just thought of this. Authentic movement is such a powerful practice of, of, of learning to witness. I use it a lot for self-care. I actually don't use it with all of my clients because of it's such a bare raw witness and you know working with the spectrum of trauma people who've been tortured often it takes time to work up to that but one of the things that I practice always is the universe is always witnessing me and so every moment um, you know I walk out the door and I notice the sun and 
that was an act of witness, and there can be reciprocity in that. I can, the sun is beaming down on me, and I can appreciate that warmth or that light. Um, recently, I had a tiny baby ladybug land on me at a particular, particularly poignant moment when I was um, engaged in my own process of letting go of someone who I loved, and just seeing this tiny new life that was so new that this, you know the little um, skin was really shiny. Um, the universe is always witnessing us, and I think responding to that connection and again sensations of warmth or a movement. You know, sometimes I'll just I just have a practice of when I really notice those moments of being acknowledged or witnessed, gesturing back. You know, I wave to the sun. I say hi, sun, or mm-hmm. um, you know, bow to the moon, or take a deep breath, or just take a breath. Just take a breath, and um, yeah, that's powerful practice in always moving. Mm, yeah, every 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 teaching, every mystery school uh, brings a lot of attention to the breath. That's that's something that every one of us shares by virtue of being alive on earth and coming back to the breath. And even in the space between my words or between us right now, uh, a listener who may not have a lot of experience with movement um, can begin to be curious about the feeling of their own breath and and the fact that we all share we all share not only between ourselves as two legged as humans but we all share this with with all other living forms. There's an in and an out process um, by virtue of being alive on the earth. Yes, it's what we do in, in my in my um, experience, what we do is so simple that that it's elusive, and that and that that most people are, are really really struggling to find to understand something or to comprehend something. But what we do is 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 so simple that it makes it a little bit difficult to receive sometimes. Mm. And when you have the feeling of your own breath, and when you have the feeling of breathing with others or respiring with with the with nature with the world it gives you a sense of belonging really of like no mm-hmm. separation and that is hopeful yeah. that lifts me right yeah. that opens yeah. my heart it lifts me yeah well, I think that's the most essential thing belonging and i love that part of changeability sharon i um I took, I don't, for, for anybody listening who knows the cognitive behavioral triangle that has dominated behavioral health and mental health and is evidence-based and so on and so forth, you know, with thoughts at the top, I've reworked that and I have belonging at the top. And I always say, you know, working with people who've been displaced, refugee survivors of torture, asylum seekers, whether they're here in the U.S. or I'm over in the camps and in another country, that's my ultimate clinical outcome. And I'm, you know, say, I'm being cheeky when I say clinical outcome. That's the ultimate goal of the of the restorative process where do i belong in a sense of belonging and making meaning of of things but Mm -hmm. i absolutely agree i think that's fundamental to our humanity that sense of belonging absolutely and the 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 very curious thing that we are all engaged in because we need to be because that's how we communicate with each other We're, we're talking about this and we're writing about this and the truth is that that the experience of it only comes uh, with less words and more feeling, and and that that's the great leap 
That's why most people, when they enter into this world, have a little bit of fear. It's because we're so used to identifying ourselves with thoughts um, and words and written words that to begin to risk being quiet and listening and feeling and moving with or without music, it, it literally feels risky for... I know it does for me every time I decide to close my door and, and, and dive into my own practice. It feels a little bit scary to, to close myself off from the telephone, from the computer, from my family, from my friends, and, and, and just really immerse myself inside my own body. And... Um, yeah. So. Mm, yeah. Well, I'm glad that you do so that you have, you know, such a rich field to offer others, both of you. Um, mm-hmm. Believe it or not, our time has come to an end for now. Um, and so before we finish, I would like each of you, if you would, to tell the listeners where they can find you, where they can find out more about you, how they can engage with you. So let's start with Fred. Well, I wish it was as easy as medicinedance.com, but but my website's under construction and there's something there, but I don't know how much they will. Um, I I do use Facebook as a way to educate people about what I do. So if someone went to facebook.com slash medicinedance, they could find me. My name's Fred Sugarman, spelled with an E-R. And if you Google me, you could find any number of things, Fred Sugarman. And my, my work is called Medicine Dance. Great. Amber? And I'm, I have, my website is not under construction, but it soon will be because it's, according to my um, niece who's a sophomore in college, it's very outdated. She's studying <laughs> communications. But I'm at www.restorativeresources.net, and there's links to my um, continuum movement practices, and it's, that's, it's sort of an umbrella website, and I'll actually be developing a website that has more information about the different movement practices. It always has my calendar. I teach heading to Australia on Sunday. I'll be in Haiti, Tonga, and New Zealand, the rest for other at other points in the summer, in Europe in the fall. And I am going to be starting more consistent classes and um, groups in Santa Fe, probably starting at the end of the year. So, But my website, I have a Facebook page. I mean, Amber Gray, I have a continuum australia facebook page and i'm actually learning how to tweet now mm-hmm. thanks to my niece so <laughs> <laughs> new tricks new tricks that's very hopeful i'm not quite tweeting yet I'm, okay. I'm an old dog it's okay we don't have to tweet we don't have to tweet we're talking instead yeah. Unless you're talking back to a bird and it greets you in the morning mm-hmm. and then you tweet, can tweet, 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 tweet. <laughs> uh, Okay, well, I thank you so much. It's been a wonderful conversation and um, I've enjoyed every minute of it. And so thank you. I look forward to more. Thank you, thank Sharon. You. Thank you, Amber. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah. This has been Passing for Normal, conversations about seeding change in the world. To find out more about author Sharon Weil, go to SharonWeilAuthor.com. You can also find out more about Changeability, the book, and about all of the guests featured in this podcast at that website. Large or small, go out today and make a brave change. Whether creating something new or responding to a changing world, 
Navigating change is the new stability.